This is an original branded podcast produced in collaboration with Vertzilla. The 100% renewable energy future doesn't start with a country, with a state, or a region. It starts with a city. One power plant in a city, in fact, in Glendale, California. We like to be leaders in Glendale, right? Like, this is the jewel city. We want to succeed as a city. We want to grow and prosper and have healthy individuals. I would think that we would be riding that wave and we would be leading it. That's a video from a local coalition of Glendale residents. Glendale is a city of 200,000 people just north of Los Angeles. And in 2014, it was in a tricky spot. The city's natural gas plant was old. I don't think anyone disputes that it's old. I think what we're worried about is the project they're proposing to replace it. The city's utility wanted to rebuild the gas plant. That didn't go over well with many locals, so they made their voices heard at rallies, town hall meetings, and in ads like these made by a local environmental group. My concern is not only having a plant that will be absolutely useless sooner than later, but also what will happen to the air in Glendale that my kid breathes. The opposition grew. The pressure mounted. And the city council in Glendale faced a decision that would impact the city for decades to come. Revamp the gas plant or find local alternatives? And how do you build the local resources to make up for a 262-megawatt power plant? Yeah, Glendale is a, is a really great case study uh, for all, all these points. That's David Millar, a resource planning consultant at Ascend Analytics. He was brought in to help the city council find a solution. And so they, the city council essentially put the project on hold and said, we want you guys to go out and do a RFP, a request for proposal, for clean energy resources so that we can either you know, reduce or hopefully eliminate the need for that local gas capacity. They got 35 proposals. David created a model that tested all of them. And using the simulations, the city got a clear idea of what the path forward might look like. It settled on 75 megawatts of utility-scale battery storage with four-hour duration, and another 15 megawatts of distributed energy resources that included behind-the-meter solar and storage, demand response programs, and energy efficiency. And then it also included 93 megawatts of Vertilla engines, which provided backup reliability. This drastically reduced the city's carbon output and local air pollution, and it was a lot cheaper. We were able to come back, we were able to save a lot of money, uh, actually, by not um, buying this 262-megawatt power plant. Uh, it's just a, just a huge win, I think, for everybody uh, in order to solve that was a really difficult problem. In this episode, the hidden hero of the 100% renewable future, Power Systems Modeling. This is the second in a three-part series produced in collaboration with Vertzilla. As cities, states, and countries make tough choices about cleaning up their power systems, they need to rely on sophisticated models. It's what helped Glendale completely shift its power mix. And finding that right mix of local clean energy sources was kind of like a puzzle, or building Legos. The, the, the technology's there. It's just understanding how to put all the pieces together. Um, you know, it's like you know, building a, a bridge out of Legos. You could do it in a cost-optimal way with the least amount of Legos, or you could just keep adding Legos to it until it works. Joe Ferrari is the general manager for utility market development at Vertzilla North America. He's interested in how utilities are planning for the future. That's what the utility industry is, is struggling with now. How do you put all those pieces together so that it works? Um, it's there, it's reliable, it's safe, and it's also not, you know, putting people into energy poverty. Joe is thinking deeply about these questions. 
And the answers all come back to good power systems modeling. Without good modeling, you cannot transform the power mix. Our producer, Lisa Bartfi, sat down with Joe to talk about this vital piece of the clean energy transition. They started with the difficult decisions that utilities all around the country are now grappling with. One concern that I've heard from a number of utilities is either the state they're doing business in has a 100% renewable portfolio standard, or even their management has declared we are going to 100% um, uh, zero carbon. Uh, the big question is, well, how do we do that? Uh, I mean, they know they're fairly comfortable getting to the 60, 70, 80% renewable range, but getting all the way to 100% is very difficult. Um, uh, difficult because they've never done this before, and they're still trying to, to learn how to do it. Now, in terms of, of assets that utilities have already paid for, many of these utilities have natural gas assets, and they know that as they add more wind and solar, they need to add more flexible gas capacity. But then comes the question, well, we declared that we will go to 100%, so why are we adding any gas at all? And that, that's a valid question. Um, what are you going to do with a natural gas plant that you install today that will be not needed 10 to 15 years from now? And that becomes a stranded asset that the ratepayers have paid for, and they're still on the hook to pay for. When you meet with legislators, policymakers, and investors, do you think that they understand this component and how to model um, when they think about the future of the electricity system? No, I don't think they, they know anything about the modeling or the type of analysis that, that goes into uh, these type of mandates uh, coming from the state in terms of renewable portfolio standards. I think they have a tremendous amount of faith that we will get there 20, 30 years from now. But I don't think they know fully, they don't have a plan as to how we'll get there. Um, and from talking to different utilities, um, it doesn't seem as if many of the utilities have a, a surefire plan of how to do this, you know, with, with full certainty. And what is it that they get wrong? What is it that most of them are lacking as they're trying to model for the future? Um, one of the big concerns is the use of legacy models at large utilities, for example. So... Most utilities in the United States uh, do some form of integrated resource planning, and that integrated resource planning is based on some type of simulation or modeling in the background. So they're trying to build out uh, using least cost principles, how do we serve load reliably, you know, with all safety being considered, but do it at the lowest cost for ratepayers. Now, the Original models that were used, and I'll call them legacy models, they're still used by many utilities today. They rely on something called the load duration curve. The load duration curve takes the load for the year, the time-dependent load every hour, and it basically sorts it from maximum to minimum. And if, if anybody listening has taken an energy course or an energy economics course, you'll see this plot and there'll be this little... Um, nest at the bottom that's called base load, something in the middle called intermediate, and then a little peak at the end that, that's called peaking. So for the past few decades, utilities have used this type of tool, which is fairly simple um, computationally, and they can find out, okay, here's, here's an area where we might need new base load assets or new intermediate assets. So there's, right now, I feel that the... the um, industry is in a transition because there's a newer class of models uh, offered in various software packages called chronological capacity expansion models. 
chronological models do not make any assumptions of sorting the load from min to max, anything like that. They, they literally take the hour-by-hour uh, load of the system as well as the hour-by-hour contribution of renewables across the whole modeling horizon, say 20 years. When these types of chronological models are used, they, they do a couple things. One, they often pick flexible assets as opposed to, say, a base load or a peaker asset. So the legacy approach of a load duration curve, often it's a binary decision. It's going to pick the cheapest capacity or the most efficient. But because it, it doesn't have any way to understand what renewables are doing to the system, it doesn't put any value on flexibility. The newer class of models, chronological capacity expansion models, they are designed to explicitly explore that space. Where do you need flexibility? And that's the type of model that's needed to find out, you know, what type of flexibility is needed. In some cases, it might be flexible thermal. In other cases, it might be energy storage, such as batteries. And so what are the consequences if we rely on the legacy models as opposed to these chronological capacity expansion models as we try and map out this clean energy transition? Yeah, one of the the consequences is that the utility or the planning agency or whoever's looking at this will see a nice clear path, say, over the next 10 or 15 or 20 years. So they go ahead and they put in, say, a, you know, a inflexible gas asset um, or a very efficient combined cycle type asset that's not really capable of cycling or starting and stopping multiple times per day. Then when the actual rubber hits the road, and here we are five years in the future, and there's a lot more sun, there's a lot more wind, they find out that those assets are cycling and and doing things that they had never anticipated. What ends up happening is that the system cost increases. Um, It's not optimized anymore. And in different places where where this has happened, what they end up doing is having to pull – or do things what they might call resource adequacy, where they see the system is running into time periods where load might not be served because assets can't ramp fast enough. And that's when they start saying, you know what, we don't, we, we haven't optimized anything. We just know that we need, you know, 200 megawatts of some type of flexible capacity. So they issue an RFP and they install it, but that wasn't really installed as any part of optimization scheme. So the, the cost of that approach is far more expensive than if they modeled it in a more appropriate way to begin with. So there seems like there are plenty of examples of utilities using legacy modeling or inadequate modeling, even as they're trying to add more renewables into their energy system. But are there any examples out there that you know of that have good or even great modeling that have already started showing results that we can look at and learn from? Yeah, um, I, I, I'm not going to mention any names of any utilities, but I, I, I do know from being active in the, in the industry that there are a number of utilities right now who have used legacy approaches for decades and are in the active process of transitioning to the more, say, um, complex, complicated, computationally intensive chronological capacity expansion models. I, I do have to say that you know, I don't want to put the blame on the utilities saying, oh, well, they should have and they didn't. Um, the reality is that these, even the legacy models, uh, many big utilities might have a whole floor of people whose job it is to use these models and build out their resource plans over, you know, they might have to do it every two years, every three years. Um, 
but changing to a new software is not a trivial exercise for these folks. It takes a lot of time to, to train their staff and how to use it. It takes a lot of time for them to be comfortable with the results and the suggestions that the models are making. And it also takes time for the regulators at the utility commissions to understand what they're doing as well. So right now, I would say that there's definitely active movement among a number of utilities to move towards a more you know, proactive chronological modeling approach, and as well as on the, um, on the side of the utility commissions in various states. They're trying to understand this and come up to speed very quickly as well. And as you were saying, that, that changing the way that we model our power systems uh, is no trivial thing. But what would be the thing that makes a utility, uh, whether public or private, really switch over? What would be that one factor that was gonna, is going to really make it worthwhile to switch the way that they model for the future? So I would say that the motivation for many of these utilities is that they see what's happening in the world. They see that there's a greater call uh, for renewables. Uh, they know that they will install more renewables because the prices are coming down uh, quite a bit year after year, and they need to have the right analytical approach to understand how to model their systems, uh, not just today, but go, looking forward 10 or 20 years. Yeah, so the tipping point will be an economic incentive rather than political or public pressure to meet the clean energy goals sooner than 2040 or 2050, in your opinion. I think that's a fair assessment. I think the, the legislative movements, the mandates, the renewable portfolio standards, uh, they do not they do not specify any way a utility has to model anything. It's more of a, a mandate that by some date, you know, so, some percentage of the megawatt hours generated or sold by that utility has to come from some type of clean resource. They might specify wind and solar, or they might say zero carbon or something along those lines. But the utilities themselves, as they try to meet these goals, uh, they're also under the gun to do so at least cost for their customers. So they need to know how to do that. And the only way you can get an accurate answer is to move to more accurate uh, modeling paradigms. There's pretty wide agreement in analyst circles that we can get to that 80% renewable uh, without exorbitant cost or a harm to the grid as it stands now. And the debate is really around what we do about those last 20% and how we get there. And you sound like a bit of a realist, um, maybe even a bit skeptical um, on this consensus uh, on what we can do with wind, solar, and storage. And where would you place yourself in the spectrum on this debate on the future of the renewable grid? I, I think 100% is absolutely doable. I do think that we need to perhaps think about it a little bit differently or open our minds a bit to you know what this means to go to 100%. So, for example, I recently concluded a study here at Wartzilla where we looked at a utility in the southwest and used long-term planning, chronological capacity expansion modeling, um, and we asked the question, what would, if you just put in the forward prices on natural gas, energy storage, solar, wind, put them into the model and just say to the model, we're not asking you to converge on anything. Just give us the optimal mix of capacity 20 years from now, you know, across that 20-year horizon. And the answer worked out to be just a little bit more than 80% of the energy coming from renewables. 
the remaining, um, the remain, so that was a little bit more than 80% directly from wind and solar. And the remainder was coming from a mix of energy storage and selective natural gas use. So that remaining 20% was, was it still had thermal in there, but it, it's not generating the majority of energy for the system. More than 80% was coming directly from wind and solar. That was the economic optimum. That was the lowest cost option. Next, we asked what would happen if you added uh, renewable fuels to this mix, specifically renewable methane. So in this context, we're looking at direct air capture of carbon coupled with hydrolysis and electrolysis to get hydrogen from water, package it together in a methanation plant, and what comes out the other end is carbon-neutral methane. If you allow the system, putting all the information we know now on the costs of power to gas, put it into the model and let it optimize, it came out with a system that was 100% uh, net zero carbon, still getting 80% of its energy directly from wind and solar. But what it was doing is allowing a, a much higher utilization of that wind and solar. So if they were curtailing a lot uh, in the 100% renewable model, just wind, solar, and and energy storage, like batteries, a lot of that excess energy is now going into this renewable fuel production. Because you still keep your thermal capacity in the system, you don't have to replace it. Only now it's not, don't think of it like fossil fuel, it's, it's thermal generation burning renewable fuels. So what that showed us is that you can indeed get to 100% uh, renewable using renewable fuels without any real cost impact to the system. It might be more economical on the grid to use renewable fuels, but how does the production of the renewable fuels and the cost of that uh, work its way into the equation? Yeah, that's a great question. So the renewable fuels, uh, um, the way that they're generated is you take excess energy from wind and solar that would typically be curtailed but now you use that to do things like use hydrolysis for hydrogen production, um, direct air capture for carbon, and then some type of methanation process to, to you know, put them together into, say, methane or methanol. Now, when you have this type of fuel uh, power to fuel in the system, it's, it's basically giving a much better utilization rate for the renewables, and it requires ultimately less renewables on the system. So... Instead of having a um, 100 gigawatts of solar for a 100% renewable system, you might only need 60, 70, 80 gigawatts. So the cost of the power-to-fuel system is not zero. You have to build that equipment, but you're also offsetting it by not building near as much wind and solar, uh, which is cheap uh, on a dollar per kilowatt basis, but you're also offsetting the transmission uh, build-outs to those facilities as well. So ultimately... The cost with using power to fuels uh, is generally lower than it would be if all you did was wind, solar, and traditional energy storage like batteries. Uh, so, Joe Ferrari, thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. This has been uh, fantastic. You've been listening to an episode produced by GTM Creative Strategies in collaboration with Vertzilla. This is the second episode in our three-part series on the 100% renewable energy future. Vertzilla creates smart, flexible power technologies to enable a cleaner grid and put the world on a path to 100% renewable energy. They're helping clients worldwide meet their clean energy goals in an efficient and cost-effective way. To learn more about Joe's ideas on how to model for this future, follow the link in the show notes.